this morning we're taking a break from our uh, series through the book of John. Um, I had the privilege of going to Mount Hermon Baptist uh, Church in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, where a friend asked me to come and preach on Christians and race. And so I spent some time studying through that. Uh, he knew that that was a burden of my heart and that uh, that's something I, I had been studying about and desired to see in uh, the American church, a, a bringing together of people from all different kinds of ethnicities and backgrounds and social classes, political backgrounds, because the gospel does that. The gospel changes things. And so I, I told him, I'm, I'm coming, I told his people, I'm, I'm coming because Justin asked me to come preach on this, because not because I'm an ex- expert on it, but because I've been thinking a lot about it. That's what he said. And I, so whether that makes me qualified to speak on it or not, I'm not sure. But uh, I just told him I'd do my best and preach from the Word. Um, but I do want to say, and I'm going to come down the steps, I don't normally do this, but I do want to say this, because often uh, we... I know it's not necessarily the case here, but often we elevate our pastors and think that, oh, they're better than everybody else. They're more righteous. They don't struggle with the kinds of sins that I do. But I want you to know, seriously, that I don't believe that that's true. That I struggle with the same sins that you do. And even though this racial harmony is a passion of mine, I want you to know I struggle in the same areas that you do, with this and a variety of other sins. So this is not me on my hobby horse preaching down to, to people who, uh, who don't agree with me. This is me preaching a word to myself. This is me preaching a word that I can never reach, that I can never meet those expectations. And so let's, let's hear the word of God this morning and respond to it uh, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that although we all fall short of your glory, although we are all in need of your amazing grace, that you give it to us freely through Christ. That as deep in the valley as we can get, you know that's where your grace goes first, to those who need it most. And we need it so bad. As we think of these areas of racial harmony and discrimination and prejudice, I confess that I need your grace. We confess that we need your grace to live in a way that you want us. And so we pray that you would do it in us by your gospel, that you would uh, make these changes in us just by the power of your word, by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look together at Galatians three twenty-three to 29. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. Um, Martin Luther King said this, 
Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And if I could tweak it, I would say this. Only the light of the gospel can drive out the darkness of racism. Only the love that is given to us in Christ has the power to overcome the hate of racism. Our main point of the text this morning is not racial harmony, but it has huge implications for how we relate to people, not only who have different ethnic backgrounds, but people who are different social, have different social statuses than us. People who have different political affinities to us. Different age groups. Different preferences. Different cultures. This text has huge implications for how we relate to people of all kinds who are different from us. And what I want us to see is just how, how powerful the gospel is in changing the course of our lives and how we relate to one another. Because, as I've said before, the culture does not have the answer to racism. The culture, our world, does not have the answer. Only the gospel gives us the answer. The main point of our text this morning, of that text I just read, is, is basically the main text of Galatians. The main text of Galatians... Paul is writing that to us because he's saying there is no way you can be justified before a holy God except through faith. It's not by works of the law. It's not by doing this or that, by observing certain religious, um, religious practices, by trying to be better. It's only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. The Galatians had turned away from the gospel. You see that in chapter uh, 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Really, he's saying this is no gospel at all. This is not good news that you're turning after. See, what had happened was these Judaizers had come into the midst of the Galatian church. Call them Judaizers because they were attempting to, to draw these Gentile Christians, that means non-Jew, they were attempting to bring these Gentile Christians into conformity with the law of Moses. They were saying, yes, you have to uh, put your faith in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep these dietary laws that were given to us in the Old Testament. You also have to do all of these things in accordance with the law of Moses if you really want to be saved. Jesus plus all these laws. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law of Moses. And what Paul is saying is that is not good news at all. It is by faith alone that we are saved. By faith alone that we are justified in Christ. So Paul lays out his arguments for this, this statement. He says, how did, you, how did you receive the Spirit in the first place? Did you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is you did it. You received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Not by the law. The promise to Abraham is still in effect. And in the verses that we just read at the beginning, verse, verses 23 and following, he's making an argument the law, that the law in itself is not bad. We often think of the law as being something that's bad. It's a bad thing. But the law is not bad. It simply has a particular use, has a particular purpose. And these Judaizers were abusing the true purpose of the law. We see that in verses 21 to 24. 
of chapter 3. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? No. And look at that next sentence. For if a law had been given that could give life, that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. See, the purpose of the law is not to give life. We think that we can... Uh, the Jews thought that that was the purpose of the law. That if by doing better and by trying harder they could fulfill the law, then they would have life. God would be pleased with them. And we often fall into that same trap. If we can be good enough, if we can do enough good, if we can be righteous enough, then that, that's where we'll have true life. Paul says the law wasn't given to impart life. It could never give life. So what is the law meant to do? What is the job of the law? What's the purpose of the law? Basically, I like to say it like this. The law kills. The law kills us. Because it shows us we can never meet up to its demands. We can never match up to the perfection of the law. Look at the words that are used in our passage. The law held us captive. It imprisoned us. It's a guardian over us. The law says, do this and live. Okay, can you meet up to that standard? Do all of this and live. Or what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain in Matthew. He says, be perfect, therefore, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. We often like to think that we, we are good people. We're basically good people. Yeah, we do bad things sometimes, but basically down deep we're good people. In our hearts we're good people. And Jesus says, all kinds of evil thoughts and evil deeds, where do they come from? They come from the heart. Be perfect. Or as he says to the young lawyer who comes up to him, the rich man who comes up to him and bows before him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus points out a few of the commands to him and says, do these things and you'll live. And what does the young man say? He says, I've done all that stuff. I've done all that since I was a little boy. So he had this same idea. I'm, I'm good. And so Jesus wanted to point out that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. And he said, okay then, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And the young man went away filled with sorrow because he knew that he couldn't do that. See, this is the demand of the law. Be perfect as I am perfect. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the law kills us. Because we know we cannot do it. The law is a mirror that shows us all the ugliness of sin on our faces. But it can do nothing to clean us up. It points out the problem, but it can't give us the cure. That's what Paul's getting at here. The law... Is never meant to clean us up, never meant to give us life. The law drives us to Christ. It imprisons us and shows us that we are, we are desperate. We need someone to free us. We need someone to save us. It drives us to Christ and says, here is your hope. Here is your salvation. Here is your life. It's only through grace that any of us will be saved. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for us. That's why he says, now that faith has come, we were under this guardian, but now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, we are no, no longer under that guardian. We are no longer in chains because Christ has freed us by His work. 
on the cross for us. He has freed us by raising, being risen from the dead, breaking the chains of death and sin, and we are no longer under a guardian. We are now sons of God. See that in verse 26? Your version might say we are all children of God. It, it, it really points to the fact that we are sons in Christ. And that applies to you women as well. You are sons of God. Sons, because the sons in the biblical times, those, were, those are the ones who would receive the inheritance. He's wanting to make that point. You receive the inheritance. So women, you're not excluded, just as we men aren't excluded when we say we are the bride of Christ. Men, you, together with us, we are the bride of Christ. And you are sons of God through Christ. He says, for... All of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So it's like you've been dipped, submerged into Christ through faith, and you have put on Christ like, like a garment, like a piece of clothing. You wear Christ. All of us. We've been baptized into Christ. We have put on Christ. We, the, the main point of this, we are justified. We are united to Christ. We are adopted into His family. All through faith. And not by works of the law. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham. And through faith we receive the promises that were given to Him. So this is the main point. But now I do want to veer off to the implications. What can we learn, especially from verse 28, about how we relate to, to others? What, are these, what, what truths is this passage giving us about racial harmony and reconciliation? So I just want to give you four implications for the rest of our time. First is this, Christ. Christ is our supreme identifying characteristic. Are you in Christ? then Christ is your supreme identifying characteristic. You have put on Christ. So your, your primary identifying characteristic is not that you are a male or female. Your supreme identifying characteristic is not that you are white or Hispanic or black. Your supreme identifying characteristic is not your culture, the kind of music, the light. The, that you like, the kind of clothes that you wear, the style that you have. It's not social. It's not that you're a Republican or a Democrat. Your, your primary and highest identifying characteristic is Christ. We are all sons in Christ. We have been adopted into His family, and so we are heirs of God. We get the inheritance. You've probably heard uh, a quote it goes something like this. It's not the name on the back of the jersey that matters most. It's the name on the front of the jersey that matters most. Have you ever heard that before? So if you're playing for the Tar Heels, the best team in the country that's going to beat Duke on Thursday night. Sorry, I, that's not in my notes. I, shouldn't have, I should not have gone there. Okay, but it's the name on the front of the jersey that matters most. You're a part of a team. You're a part of a larger group. It's not the name on the back of your jersey. And this is how it is in Christ. We have put on Christ and His name is emblazoned across our chests. We are one in Christ. We are teammates in Christ. And so the back of the jersey means so much less. It's the name of Christ that unites us. 
No matter how different we are from one another, it's Christ that brings us together. This is our supreme identifying characteristic. And this means that we have more in common with other sons than non-sons. Okay? Did you hear that? This means that you have more in common with other sons, women included, with other sons and daughters of God than those who are non-sons. That means if you have a family member who is not a believer, who has rejected Christ, that means you have more in common with a person who hates the kind of music you love, who can't, couldn't be able to stand to dress the way that you dress, who doesn't act personality-wise in the same way that you act, but is also a Christian. You have more in common with that son or daughter in Christ than any non-sons or daughters, even if they're biologically related to you. This is a huge implication, isn't it? That, that can change, radically change our perspective if we see one another in these, this kind of light. So first, Christ is our supreme identifying characteristic. Second, our earthly, cultural, ethnic, gender, whatever you want, political characteristics are not erased in the gospel. Okay, They're not our primary characteristic, but they're not erased in the gospel either. Now, where do I get that from? We'll look at verse 28 again. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now you could get crazy and see this as, okay, there's really not male or female anymore. We're all just unisex, right? You think that's what Paul really means? No. These distinctions are not erased in the gospel. You are still a female. You are still a male. You may still be poor. You may still be rich. You're still black, you're still white, you're still Hispanic or Asian. These characteristics are not erased in the gospel. Social class is not erased. Ethnic and cultural backgrounds are not erased. And I would go further and say not only are they not erased, they exist for a reason. They exist for a purpose. They exist to give glory to God. You are a woman for the glory of God. You are white for the glory of God. You are an Asian for the glory of God. You are rich or poor for the glory of God. These ethnic distinctions are not erased. Rather, they still exist for the glory of God. Now imagine you were standing in a field full of flowers, acres and acres of flowers. And they're all monochrome. They're all kind of a grayscale. That might would be something neat to see, right? But it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful as if all the flowers were filled with bright, various colors. All the colors of the rainbow. And not only are they, they different colors, they're different shapes, they're different sizes. And this is what God means for our diversity. For all these characteristics that we still have. This is what God wants. Often it's said that uh, we should all be colorblind. We shouldn't see people as one ethnicity or another. And I think that's a step in the, that could be a step that's better than racism. That's better than seeing the distinctions and looking down on someone else. But I think there's a, even a better option than being colorblind. 
to these distinctions. And that is seeing them as beautiful in God's sight. As a beautiful display of God's creativity. These exist for the glory of God. Not that we wouldn't see these distinctions, but that we would see them and say, wow, all this diversity of people and differences are united together as one in Christ. That is so beautiful. That's what God wants us to see. As beautiful, more beautiful than the diversity of this earth. Is the diversity of God's people who are united together in Christ. This, this means not only color, but also gender and age and musical tastes, right? All these things come together to give God glory. So Christ is our supreme identifying characteristic. Second, all these characteristics that we have in this earth, they're not erased. Rather, they exist for God's glory. And third, these distinctions, however, no longer serve as spiritual privilege to God or barriers between one another. So these distinctions aren't erased, but they no longer serve as barriers between our relationship with God and with one another. Think about the biggest divides of our day. What might they be? Political, that's a big one, right? Ethnic background, we say that we're post-racial, but I don't think we are. And one of the evidences of that is the churches throughout North America. I think that's another big divider in our culture today. But Paul, in this passage, picks out the biggest dividers he could think of. Look at verse 28 again. Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. These were the biggest dividers in the culture of the time. In fact, Paul probably said what was a common Jewish prayer every morning. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a woman, and that I'm not a slave. Can you believe that? Paul probably would have said that prayer himself. And so here he's pointing out these biggest divisions, these things that you think should exist, these barriers that you think are right and acceptable, they've all been taken down. They no longer serve as barriers to Fellowship in the gospel. This is Paul's meaning here also in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. That God had, has intended now to bring together one new man. By man he means Jew and Gentile together. To worship God and be in relationship with Him. Now this is true. We we'll all agree that this is true in a universal and spiritual sense, Right? Everyone has access to God no matter what they look like, no matter what differences they have between one another. Everybody is reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's by grace. We recognize this on a universal sense. But what about on the practical sense? Does it make any difference on the ground? Does this universal truth make any difference in the practical or outworkings of our lives or of the church? And we see that it did in... Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Look at Galatians 2, 11 through 19. Here's a practical, on-the-ground example of the difference this should make in our lives. Verse 11 of chapter 2. When Cephas, that's Peter, 
came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, because of your behavior, Peter, you are not walking in line with the gospel. You're out of step with the gospel. He wasn't questioning his Christianity. He wasn't questioning his faith in Christ. But he was saying, your life, how you're treating other people, is not matching up to what you say you believe. And I think for us, this, is, this might be our first, the first step we can, well, the first step is prayer. Okay? As a church, as individuals, the first step you can take is prayer. But another step we can take in bridging the gap between people of other ethnicities or other differences is by calling each other out. Like Paul did with Peter. He opposed him to his face. And so if someone tells a racist joke, call them out if they claim to be a Christian. Oppose them to their face. Say, this is not, do it lovingly, this is not in line with the gospel. This is not how a Christian ought to behave. We wear the same name on our chests. We belong to Christ. Call them out. I think that's a good first step that Paul models for us. Because these distinctions no longer serve as barriers to fellowship. But on another, on another practical level, okay, we'll all acknowledge in the universal sense that God broke down the barriers right, of all these distinctions. But what, what practical difference does it make if God broke down the barriers, but we never crossed them? Right, but we never bridge the gap, that we never join hands with others who are different from us. So this is something we should all ask ourselves, including me. Are there, are there barriers that I have erected in the place that God has torn down? Are there, are there still latent prejudices in my heart? When I see someone, I immediately think this or that. Are there barriers, maybe that you didn't even put up, maybe that we're... We did not put up in our church that were erected long ago that we've never dealt with. That have kept people different from us out. And you might say, well, you know, it's just, it's just hard. These distinctions, yeah, they no longer uh, spiritually per, get put barriers up, but people worship differently. People, uh, people like different kinds of preaching. Right? Isn't that true with us, though, who are here today? Some of you like hymns and don't like contemporary at all. Some of you like contemporary and don't like hymns at all. Probably most of you can't stand my preaching. <laughs> no, we all like different styles. We all, like, we all have different tastes. But this has, we, we still are united together in Christ. These barriers do not, we still somehow make it work. And I think that's what God desires among not just who are like one another in many different ways, but those who are radically different from us. Those who, had seen, those who the world would see and say, there's no way those two people could be friends. 
That's what the gospel does. It shocks the world. Finally, I want to bring to you the last implication. Being God's sons, we are all heirs to the promise of Abraham. We are all God's sons, and therefore we are all heirs to the promise of Abraham. This is what he's talking about in Galatians 3. This promise to Abraham that was given to him. Through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And this promise is ultimately and perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, God is making for Himself a new people. A people who are one. And through Jesus, Abraham's offspring, all the nations are blessed with the forgiveness of sins by the death and resurrection of Jesus. By His perfect work, we are reckoned as righteous in God's sight through faith. But this promise does not make its complete culmination until Jesus comes back. This promise that all the nations will be blessed through Christ makes its final fulfillment, its final appearance, as we see it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9, we read this. After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, he could see the differences. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. They were wearing Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne into the Lamb. They're worshiping together around the throne of Christ. This is where this promise to Abraham meets its final fulfillment, its culmination, as the people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation are gathered around the throne worshiping Him. And some might see that and say, yeah, but we'll never get there in this life. We'll never make it. It's too difficult. The barriers are too big. They're too wide. We can't, we can't bridge the gap. And that's true. We won't ever get there in this life. Never. But, does it keep us from praying, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's it like in heaven? We just saw a picture. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in our lives, in our church, in our community, as it is in heaven. We pray that. We desire that. And not only does it not keep us from praying that, it doesn't keep us, the fact that we won't make it in this lifetime, it doesn't keep us from living as present citizens in the already kingdom of God. We live in light of what is to come. We live in light of the truth about who we are. And plus, are we ever going to attain sinless perfection in this life? Does that mean we shouldn't pursue it? No, strive for it. Strive to live like Christ instructed us to. We're never going to reach the whole world with the gospel. Does that mean we stop? That we don't pursue it? Absolutely not. You see, God's purposes in the end drive our pursuits in the here and now. And one of God's purposes is that all God's people would be united together in love, worshiping before His throne. God's purposes drive our pursuits.
So let us love one another. As we sang together, let us love one another. Let us not only uh, say that we're welcome to anyone and everyone who comes, let's go out to anyone and everyone we can find and tell them the good news of Jesus who died for sinners and who reconciles people who are totally different from one another in His body, in that one body of Christ. We are one in Christ. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank You for making us sons and daughters. For making us one in Christ. For baptizing us by your Spirit into Christ, for giving us the perfect righteousness of Christ, for giving us the supreme identifying characteristic who is Christ. And Lord, we also want to thank you for the unique ways you've made every single one of us. Because you've done it for your glory. Help us to see in that way, Lord. And help us to be driven to pursue your purposes in the here and now. So that others around our community look at our church and just be shocked at the diversity which is united in one for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.